right, and welcome back to the final episode of Season 2 of Fine Answers. Today, we're going to do something a bit different, and that's talk about, I guess, a hypothetical at this point in time, and something that's not set in stone, but it looks like it will be within a few months, at least from our opinion, and that is the Securing a Strong Retirement Act, um, which currently as of the recording of this podcast, just left the Ways and Means Committee and then is is making its way through Congress. So just a bit of background on that. A lot of people are dubbing this Secure 2.0 Act because there was a Secure 1.0 Act back at the end of December of 2019. And in essence, that there was a lot of stuff kind of crammed into that, but the big kind of things were that it changed the inherited IRA distribution timelines so instead of if you inherited an IRA from somebody who was deceased, it used to be lifetime your lifetime expectancy where you had to take the distributions. They changed it to a 10-year after that person was deceased. The account basically had to be fully drained. The next thing that it did was push back the RMD age from 70 and a half to 72. And the last kind of big line item was that it made it so part-time workers were could more easily access a retirement plan at their employer. So those were kind of the big points of Secure 1.0, which leads us into Secure 2.0, which I said is is kind of being built up as we speak. So we wanted to give you some insight into that to maybe start to think about planning around it. I have Mike and Joe here with me who are going to help dissect it a little bit. So the first big line item for Secure 2.0 was it's going to increase the RMD age again. So it's it's building upon Secure One and in, in pushing it back even further. And it seems like Secure 2.0 actually is more in it than Secure One did, right? I mean, there, there seems to be more that affects most a lot of our clients and people care about a lot. Increasing the RMD age, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why we didn't just do it the first time. Like it, They're talking about going from 72 to 75, essentially, over the next 10 years, which is probably going to complicate things quite a bit, right? Because... Every year, essentially, the RMD age goes up by one or every couple of years. So you're going to have all these different people that are going to have different required distribution start times based on their dates of birth. It's just going to get really convoluted. I mean, you know, I'm very much in favor of getting rid of the half year, going from 70 and a half, which yeah. is a crazy age to start, to, to 72, and at least it's a, an, an actual age. And but, I think it's important to point out that even though Mike is talking about different ages, People are going to be stuck with whatever the rule was when they turned that particular age as well. So, you know, the rule now is 72, but if you were already 70 and a half, and we'll get to the point where that gap maybe is gone already. I don't know. I haven't done the math. But if you were 70 and a half when they passed this law and you were already under the old rule, the new rule didn't work for you. So as we roll out these new time frames, you're going to have people who are over that age limit or under that age limit, but they're still required to take their distribution because they weren't, right? they were already over the limit, the age limit before. And it sounds like that's the way they're going to handle this one too, where they index it up every year. In the year you kind of start your RMDs is the year you continue forward with for, well, I guess that would make sense, right? Yeah, once you start, you just keep going, right? Even if the age ticks up, you got to keep going because you've already started. pause and then start again, yeah. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think... On the surface, I guess it, it, it makes some sense. Like, it's probably good for a lot of people, right? If if you 
if you need to take distributions from your retirement plans to pay the bills, then you don't really care what the RMD age is because you're already taking the distributions you need. If you're putting it off, later is always better, right? You let the account grow longer. It gives us more opportunity to do tax planning, right? It's We always look at that with clients as you kind of have that that gap, the gap between when they retire and when they have to start taking distributions that we can do some tax planning and kind of, you know, use the tax brackets and, and laws to our advantage. So that gives us more time to do that. And to that point, Mike, maybe I should throw in there real quick. A lot of people often ask, you know, what's the point of the RMD? And it's essentially a revenue generator for the government. Oh, absolutely. Because if you are not taking money out of there, it's not a taxable distribution and they don't get any chunk of it. So the whole point of the RMD in general is to start forcing you to take money out of that account which is taxable income. So yeah, just so you can't let it grow forever and never pay tax on it, right? Right. So yeah, I mean, I think overall it's it's a positive. It's just you know I wish they hadn't phased it in like that with different ages for different people. And I and I think both Mike and Matt have already talked about the idea of planning. This whole act is going to open up the planning area tremendously. It's going to be great opportunities or needs to do planning because there's opportunity to save money to invest differently. So I, I think this is going to be a real uh, emp- there's going to be a real emphasis on planning going forward. All right, so that is part one of Secure 2.0. Let's jump into the next big line item, which is expanding auto enrollment in retirement plans. Yeah, I mean, I think my guess is people will be will be split on this, right? So the idea is that if your company starts a 401k or some other type of retirement plan all of the employees who are eligible are automatically enrolled and money is taken out of their paychecks to, to contribute to the plan. So they have to opt out of it if they don't want to participate. That's kind of the opposite of how it's done now. Right now, if they set up the plan and if you want to participate, you have to opt in. Studies have shown that the automatic enrollment is huge for retirement savings, right? People who are auto-enrolled tend to actually do it and participate more and contribute more. And it's 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 great for you know, retirement savings in general, the question becomes, do people feel, you know, like that's fair to automatically enroll them in this and make them say no? So I guess other than kind of the pushback of how dare you enroll me in this plan I didn't ask for, mm. I think overall it's probably great, right, is it gets more people to participate. And unfortunately, the number of people who are offered a retirement plan versus how many participate, that gap is is way too big. I mean, considering most of us are kind of on our own for retirement savings, we have to save as much as we can for retirement. The fact that most people don't participate in their their offered plan is is a huge problem. So, so many companies today have auto enrollment. So, this rule would just make it sort of mandatory that you have to do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, and and the only kind of issue I see with it is they they came up with a rule and said we're going to do auto enrollment, and then they exempted so many businesses that they kind of gutted a lot of it. Right. So, simple IRAs don't count. Existing plans don't have to do it. Uh, businesses less than three years old don't have to do it. And businesses less than 10 employees don't have to do it. So, you know, that's a that's a huge range of people. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that you run into a lot with stuff like this is the bigger companies with more employees have more resources with which to educate their employees on the importance of it. So it tends to be those smaller companies where they just don't have the resources to say, like, here's why you should participate. Here's why it's good for you. Here's what you should contribute. So those are probably the people who need it the most. But my guess is they just didn't want to seem like they were overreaching, so they exempted them. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of split on the whole thing. To your prior point, it's like, well, 
you know, I, I don't like when anybody forces my hand to do something. It's like, well, that that's my decision to enroll in that if I want to or not. So who, who are you to say that I have to be? But at the same time, you know, we're lazy by nature. So it's like if I have to go do something and fill out paperwork and blah, 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 you're not going to get around to it. Whereas if, if you just do it and you have to do that step to opt out of it, you know, it, it's going to, like you said, force force retirement savings. But maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's probably one of those, you know, it's it's like eating your vegetables. Nobody wants to do it, but it's good. It, it's what's best for you. Yeah. You know? yeah. Plus, the sooner you start, the bigger that snowball gets. So oh, absolutely. Right. It just makes sense to start early. And if somebody forces you to do it, maybe you just do it and don't opt out. Right. Okay. The next big point in Secure 2.0 was around the catch-up contributions. So maybe one of you can give a brief disclaimer of what catch-up contributions are and then go into how it's going to potentially change here. So the the catch-up contribution is essentially, as, as the law stands now, when you turn 50, you are able to contribute an extra amount to your retirement plan. The amount kind of depends on which plan IRAs and 401ks are, are different. But it essentially gives you the opportunity to catch up, right? So hence the name. So if you think you haven't contributed enough, you can add a little extra to your contributions for the years between 50 and 65 to kind of make up the difference. This would essentially right now the the issue with it is they have to come up with a new amount every year if they want to change it. So there's no automatic increase in the amount you can contribute. Congress has to basically say, okay, this year or the IRS or somebody has to basically say instead of Five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars this year, it's going to be fifteen hundred or whatever it is. But they have to proactively change it. Secure two point would index that amount for inflation. So every year, the amount that you can contribute would increase based on inflation, as opposed to requiring some intervention to increase the amount. Which sounds like a lot more confusion, because it's going to be a different amount. You think you know the rules, and then the next year the the amount is different. So again, the need for planning and staying on top of this stuff is just becoming more and more critical. No, it's 100 percent true. Is right. Yeah, right now the amounts are easy because it's you know when they manually increase them, they go whatever 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks or whatever it is. So it's it's easy to remember when you do it by inflation. Yeah, you could have a contribution limit of you know six thousand nine hundred and seventy two dollars. Right. So mm. it, it, you could have these somewhat random amounts that are the limits. So it does make it a little more confusing from that perspective. And, and I'll I'll also point out the concept of catch up really doesn't mean that you might be behind. You could have maxed out your 401k your entire working career, but at age 50, you're allowed to contribute more. In that particular case, they call it a catch-up, but you're really not catching up on anything. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a little, maxed of, it out. It's a little misleading, right? Because, yeah, there's no requirement for having not maxed it out in the past, right? That's true. It just increases your limit, essentially, for those last 15 years. And I think the the other provision is they're adding a second tier to the catch-up contribution, so they're between the ages of 62 and 64, you can add even more. So they're going to increase, you know, when you turn 50, there's a, a catch-up amount. And then when you turn 62, they're going to increase that amount. So you can do even more for those last couple of years. Because the 62 to 64 is pretty substantial, right? An additional five. An additional five. Yeah. Okay. 5,000. And again, I'm, I guess my only question is, and I, I, I don't know if I found an answer for it, is that index for inflation also? So... As the initial catch-up grows with inflation, does it get closer to that second tier? And we'll find that out, I'm sure, once they actually once it becomes law. All right, great. Moving right along, this one might apply more to younger people starting out in their careers who are contributing to retirement. But in Secure 2.0, there is going to be a provision for 
student loan repayments and allowing your employer to help you more with that. So I guess this matching provision, traditionally you kick money into a 401k, the employer would put a match into the 401k. This rule seems to suggest that if you took some of that 401k money and instead paid off your student loan, the employer would still potentially put a match into your 401k for you. So you're still getting some retirement savings while at the same time you're paying down your student loan. Right. I think that's great. I, I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily see too much of a downside to it, right? As younger people, that's always the the trade-off they have to make, right? Is I have the student loan debt at potentially, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent, but I also want to contribute to my 401k because I'm giving up free money if I don't because the employer would match it. So what do I do? You know, right. and without any kind of guaranteed rate of return on the investments, how do you how do you make that decision? I think this makes that decision a heck of a lot easier for them because the answer is, well, you, you can pay down the student loan and still get the match from the employer. I think that's fantastic. Definitely. So the next thing that we wanted to discuss, or the next two things, I guess, both circulate around the idea of Roth. The first one was, and again, in this proposal, they're basically saying that SEP in simple IRA plans are going to essentially get Roth options. So whereas you're a lot of 401ks and 403bs and, and just traditional IRAs have Roth options, SEP and Simple currently do not. So this is essentially queuing that up. Yeah, which I think is is also excellent, right? Is And just really quick basics, traditional IRAs and, and traditional Simples and SEPs, you get a tax deduction today. Eventually when you take the money out, you pay tax on all the money. With a Roth, you don't get a tax deduction today, but all the money that you take out down the road is entirely tax-free. So all the growth is tax-free. So for younger people, Roths tend to be better options. So expanding it to include other types is, it just makes sense, right? I mean, self-employed people right now are usually those who set up SEPs and simple IRAs because they're for smaller businesses. Yeah, and it only seems fair, right? So if, oh. if a lot of 401ks offer the, you know, for people that just work for an employer, if they if they get the option, why, because I'm self-employed, why don't I? So yeah, right. and, and I think the other thing to think about is for those that want to do a Roth IRA, there are income limits. If you go over that limit, you're not allowed to do it, whereas the Roth 401k has opened up the door for many of us to be able to go Roth, and by expanding that to the simple and the SEP, I think that further gives people the ability to go Roth. Yeah, right. like you say, I think it just it totally makes sense. Right. And then along those same lines, with the, with the 401ks and other retirement plans that have employer matching, typically if you opt in your 401k to do the Roth option, the match comes in as traditional. So this Secure 2.0 is going to change that. How? So it, it, it seems as though it would allow the employer match to also be a Roth contribution. I, this one, I don't know if I love it as much. I mean, I like it for people because it's probably better for younger people, right? They get the money as, as on the Roth side, so they never pay tax on the growth. I think it's going to complicate things because right now, if the employer gives you the, that 401k contribution on the traditional side, you don't pay tax on it today because it would be tax deductible. So you just don't get taxed until down the road when you take it out. If they contribute the match to the Roth side, now it's income to you, right? So I guess the question is, and this is all kind of crazy tax stuff, but does it just go on your W-2? If it goes on your W-2, is it subject to Social Security and Medicare tax? Because that would kind of take some of the benefit of the Roth away. So you know, how are they going to include this in your income properly? 
And also, does that lead to a lot of people who traditionally get refunds, if they go this route, all of a sudden they owe money? And how do you make up the taxes for the money they owe? So it, it, it just kind of complicates a lot of people's tax situations if they go that route. So it's going to take some, as Joe said at the beginning of the thing, it's going to take a lot of planning, right? It's, that's why you talk to your accountant or advisor and, and figure out what your situation is. Does it make sense? And how is it going to impact your taxes before you do it? Yeah, to me for, you know, it, we've said it 10 times, Mike just said it again, but planning just becomes more and more important with these things. It's it's kind of funny, too, because for the, like the last five years, the government has really been preaching tax simplification. <laughs> and with everything that they push out the door, it just gets more and more and more and more complex. So I don't really know. They're, they're not really following their own mantra there. But um, I don't know if it's five years or 35 years, but I, <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's been getting more complex for a while now. Yeah, but... Um, all right, so in the last thing that we wanted to touch on, probably the most esoteric one, but it essentially, going back to the RMD discussion, it the this act will change the statute of limitations for a missed RMD. And maybe Mike can tell you more what that means. Yeah, it's interesting. It actually does two things. So it changes the statute of limitations. Right now, the IRS position is if you miss your required distribution and you don't take it, they can come back at any point in the future and penalize you for that because there's no statute of limitations because of the kind of the way that how they look at it. Right now, the penalty for missing the RMD is 50% of what you should have taken. This would change that to kind of count the tax return filing as the start of the clock on the on the statute of limitations. So essentially, they'd have three years to catch you if you didn't take the RMD. The other thing it does is it reduces that 50% penalty to 25, and it reduces it further to 10% if you fix it kind of take the RMD and disclose it to the IRS in a timely manner. So you basically fix the mistake. You know, my my initial thought is, or my concern with that is, right now if you miss the RMD and, you know, you, you make up for it and you kind of say, oh, I'm sorry, I missed it, my mistake, it won't happen again, I've never seen them actually implement the 50% penalty because it is so egregious. If they reduce that to 10%, probably more likely that they actually hit you for it. You know, mm. so I think it's probably a double-edged sword where the potential penalty sounds lower and it sounds like a good thing, but it could be a bad thing because the IRS might be more likely to actually implement it. And I don't think any of us really know the inner workings of the IRS, but I would seem to think if if they're going to impose a statute of limitations and the IRS now only has three years to figure that out to, to get their money, God knows they're probably going to put in whatever the software that looks at your return, something that compares it against the database – with people that should take an RMD, and if there's no distribution reported on your income tax return, you know, letters are probably going to come out a lot quicker than they used to. That's just my own. Yeah. No, I mean, truthfully, I'm surprised they haven't done that yet, right? Yeah. If you think about it, like Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, like all the big firms, if you have a retirement plan with them and you're subject to the RMD, they send you a letter telling you exactly what your required distribution is. So... I'm surprised that that hasn't become a reporting mechanism, right? That they somehow aren't required to report that to the IRS and then a computer just matches up the 1099 that shows what you took with what you should have taken. And, you know, there's reasons that it gets a little more complicated than that. Maybe that's why they haven't done it. But yeah, I, like you say, the, the technology exists to make that a reality. Right. Again, to, I have two takeaways from this whole thing, but the, you know, we've been talking about all of this. This is around retirement planning, right? The secure 2.0 act is meant to change and improve retirement savings for Americans. But I think on almost every one of these points we brought in tax implications. So, you know, it just goes to 
to show you how tax ties into literally everything you do. And that's why we make it such a point at our firm to to tie in tax implications with every decision that we make. And the second thing that I wanted to note is, you know, this is still nothing set in stone here. So this is all subject to change. It might, it's, there's potential that it might not even pass altogether. There's kind of general consensus that, that it seems like it might, cause it, it's pretty popular in timeline on that. I think, I think they basically said we're looking at like end of 2021. Probably something like that by the time they get it passed through all the different areas they need to pass it. Right. So I guess um, one last point I want to make too is in, in reading all this, one of the questions we get sometimes from clients is, you know, if I do a Roth IRA, how do I know that they're not going to change the rules down the road, right? And make it taxable or something like that. The more of these changes they make that push everything towards Roth, the less likely that is. And if you think about it, the government loves the, the Roth, the idea of the Roth, right? Because you pay the taxes today and, and people like it. Like, what else is there where you pay the taxes today and everybody likes this idea? You know what I mean? So it's if it's popular and it's a revenue generator, they're yeah. going to they're going to push that all they can. So, you know, I, I don't think there's much of a chance that they change the rules on the Roth anytime soon. I think it's pretty much here to stay as it is. But like everything else, I could be totally wrong. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't know. I tend to disagree a little bit just in the sense that Roths are still kind of new, right? They only started, what was it, 1997? yeah. The Roth came out. So there's really not that many people right now who are using the Roth to pay for or essentially to offset their income, right? Most people who are retired are probably drawing off traditionals and paying the tax on that. So I just wonder when a vast majority of people who have Roths cruise into retirement, their income basically goes to zero, I just wonder if they're going to say, oh, crap, you know, what, what are we going to do now? We have we just lost that entire income stream. Don't be cynical, um, man. Oh, you know, <laughs> listen, we got we to gotta play both sides on this podcast. Yeah. So It's not like they would have a tax Social Security, right? Right, exactly. Well, that's usually exactly. the, the, the corollary, right, is like social used to not be taxable, and then they decided, wait, we can, we can get some money from that. Well, and also one of our other advisors here pointed out that the, the precedent for changing the rules after, not to get all political here, but the precedent for changing the rules after the rules have already been set up was kind of violated this year with the unemployment, right? So it kind of worked in everybody's favor where they, after the game had started, they said, oh, wait, we're going to, you know, we're not taxing the first 10,200 unemployment, but that was retroactive. So it kind of sets up the precedent where they can change things after they've already been set up. Yeah. but. Well, they've, they've done that a number of times this tax season. The, you know, the premium tax credit, yeah, uh, the unemployment, uh, taxation of PPP forgiveness. So at, again, it, federal you know, level, state level. This this time around, it was all kind of in everybody's favor tax wise. Right. Exactly. So everybody's like, oh yeah, that's fine. But right. again, it set the precedent. So when it flips the other way and you know becomes less favorable, it's it's already been done. So it's like I don't know, but. So yeah, anyway, we just wanted to kind of get this on everybody's radar, Secure 2.0, just so you can start thinking about it and maybe start talking to your advisor about what the implications might mean for you and maybe setting up some contingent plans if this all goes as as we see it going and, and becomes law. But yeah, anything yeah. else? Yeah, I guess to follow up with what you were just saying, Matt, our proposition for our clients, what separates us from some other advisors is we 
are a CPA firm and a wealth management firm. Uh, financial planning is the backbone of, on of what we do. Uh, we have, I believe, five CPAs in the practice. We have a number of people who have the Masters of Science of Taxation. We have a number of people who are licensed financial advisors. So, again, taxes is such a big part of investing and financial planning that having that under one roof is probably a pretty good thing. Yeah, 100%. I love the shameless plug. <laughs> it's a perfect way to end it. All right. Well, again, that was the end of um, season two. So we will be back season three sometime in the future. We don't really have a plan for that yet, but I'm guessing within a few months. So until then, take care, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about uh, in a few months. So bye-bye. Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.